0: I want to read to you, uh, beginning with the first verse that we began to study two weeks ago. And we'll read uh, through verse 3, so that we are reminded of the context of the verse in which we look at this morning. It says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, but just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you this morning or we come as humbly as we know how, Lord, and we just ask that you would give us. The spirit of humility in which we can look to the Savior Jesus Christ to reveal Himself in this Scripture, God. And we just pray that uh, this morning You would uh, be so inclined to bestow upon us the the heaviest offering of Your mercy and Your grace and discernment of Your Word, that we may by it be conformed to the image of Christ and that uh, we may be transformed from the inside out. Lord, change our ways. Lord, with Your Word, battle the sin that is in our lives, Lord, and give us the ability and the desire to do so, God. And we just ask that uh, You would receive the worship that we offer this morning, Lord, and that You would show us continually how to worship and how to be obedient unto Christ. Lord, and we just trust You, and Lord, and we trust that Your Word this morning will be fruitful in the, in the minds and in the hearts of those Who are yours, Lord, and we pray that by this word, you would continue to call even amongst our midst, our midst this morning, uh, your sheep unto you uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the word that has become flesh in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Last week, we looked at verse two. And what we have was a continuation from the previous week. Whereas in these verses we are seeing how Christ is depicted as one who is faithful. And then it it just comes right out and says that in verse 2. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. And what we see is an appeal to the Hebrew people here who have for some time uh, accredited Moses and Abraham as the most faithful men of God that they have ever seen. And so everything that they do is to follow these men of God and in that they have become trapped so to speak, uh, in this law keeping. And what we're reminded of throughout the text of the Hebrews is that uh, there has come a point in which the old covenant is uh, sort of obsolete and the new covenant has become one that is both although we didn't know it preeminent, that it would have existed. Christ Himself has existed from eternity, and then He is taken on flesh, and we have this greater covenant, whereby man could not find righteousness in the first, for he could not keep it, yet the Lord is faithful. And so what we have is the people who were reserved, Israel, the people of God, His people, although they did not fully trust, and although they missed the Messiah, some of them we have explained for, this Jesus Christ in the Hebrews, who is the Son of God, the Son of David, prophet, priest. King, sufficient propitiation. And so we have the people moving from that which could not save, but what was bringing them to the light, bringing them to an understanding of who Christ is. This is through the law. And we have them coming to the Savior who is able to save, who is willing to save, and who has in fact procured salvation upon Calvary's cross. And so there is the appeal to these people. Don't Uh, not to abstain completely from following Abraham or Moses, but don't look to them as if it were unto salvation because we have one who is greater. And it says, He was faithful to Him who appointed Him. We have Jesus Christ, the always, eternally existing Jesus, who is now the Christ, the Messiah, appointed by God the Father Himself, and we see His faithfulness where it surpasses the faithfulness of every man before. To include Moses, to whom these people looked up to. And and that's really where we continue today, this appeal to the Hebrew people. For He has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. What a striking statement that must have been to these people who held Moses in such high esteem. And it goes on to say, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. The the appeal is an explanation and an affirmation of who Jesus Christ is and how he is to be compared even to the best of men, even to Moses. And so we find ourselves in a section of Scripture that is describing the priest who we have in Jesus Christ. This Christ is the high priest and more importantly for the body of believers that is hearing the message today or who may ever hear this message as it uh, reaches the internet or wherever some may hear it. Uh, we have this confession that Jesus Christ is our high priest. And I want to make an, an emphasis there. When I say our high priest, this is a, a definite article. This is saying that Jesus is the high priest, the only remaining high priest, the only ever true high priest. And in his priestliness, in his priesthood, he is a priest only to us, only to Those who I'm describing with the word our, as I say, our high priest, the church, the bride of Christ. Christ is not the priest for those who do not trust in Him. For He does not bring a sacrifice for those who do not believe in His name. For those, there remains yet a need for a sacrifice. And the truth, the the daunting truth this morning is that there is no sacrifice other than Jesus Christ. If we do not trust and rest in Him, there is no Lord for us, yet Satan will reign. There is certainly no Sabaoth, certainly no rest, for there is no Savior unless it is Jesus Christ. And so a lot is to to really be said of the priesthood of Jesus as we consider uh, the text this morning, but it can all be summed up really in one statement, and that is that Jesus' priesthood is one that is superior. In fact, it is not higher, it is the most high. And we see that because of Christ's dual nature as both man and God. It is a priesthood that is denoted unlike any other priesthood by a sacrifice that is singular. This priesthood is unique because other priests would have brought many sacrifices for many sins. And this priest, who is Jesus Christ, is bringing one sacrifice for many more sins, for an infinite number of sins, a a number of sins that are, for us as, as mere humans, countless. But for God, He knows them all. None are hidden. So we have a priesthood denoted by a single sacrifice. The alternative for the Hebrew people would be to consider the Levitical priesthood. Those of the Aaronic priesthood that were offering these multiple sacrifices as I described. And what we notice from this priesthood is we, we notice a repetitive motion there. That the priest would come again and again. Why? Because the people were sinning again and again. And the truth is that the people haven't changed. The sinners are no different now than they were then. Uh, If we had a priesthood of Levitical status, I, I would submit to you that the priest would need to stay here and we would have to bring him his meal and we would have to bring him his clothes and we would have to bring him his water because we are so sinful that he would need to stay bringing sacrifices on our behalf. But praise the Lord, that is not the truth. That is not the reality since the Christ has come, since the Messiah has arrived. He has gone to the place that we cannot go without Him. And He has offered the sacrifice. And to God before it now is a sweet smelling savor. And there is satisfaction. And there is fulfillment of the law. And there is a period of which we now can rest because the sacrifice is now sufficient. What Christ has done is now finished. Sacrificing is over for the remission of sin. It has been done. These Levitical priests, these such as these, were needed for no mere mortal sacrifice of this priesthood could ever atone for sin. No mortal man could bring a sacrifice and that be enough. That's the idea behind the statement. No mere mortal priest could come and enter in and lay down an offering that would suffice. He would have to come again and again. And even if this was a perfect lamb or animal as it was supposed to be, We must consider that if this priest was a man, certainly he would have tainted the sacrifice the moment that his hand touched it. And what we see is the mercy and the grace of God, even in the Old Testament, even before Christ, as He would allow these sacrifices for a time to appease Him. That He would make a way for man. And, And what we see in that is not... As, as some people should we, uh, uh, as some people do they see a period of this covenant, these sacrifices and they see a definitive line in which that stops and then they see a point in which Christ comes and now He's the sacrifice and we really shouldn't see it that way although to some extent it is that way but what we should see in it is a representation and a foreshadow of what Christ would do in the future that wasn't Sufficing, And what God knew is that He could allow the sacrifice to be brought forward. And for a time it could be well pleasing. But what He knew is you would continue to sin. And you would need a sacrifice and you would need a sacrifice. But what He is showing us in this old Levitical system is that He is always gracious, He is always merciful, and He most certainly has always been long-suffering. And He is showing us that He has always had a plan of salvation that was to appoint Christ as the Messiah to be a final sacrifice. Because what was happening, no one was being saved. But Christ was coming. And in that would be salvation. There's no point or no plan of salvation, if you will, if you were to just cut off the New Testament from the Old Testament. If all you had was the Old Testament and you never saw Jesus Christ and the Messiah never came, what would be your plan of salvation? How would you explain salvation to people in that time? You cannot without Jesus Christ. There was, even in the Old Testament, the Messiah to come, the Christ, the Deliverer, the one who is propitiation. And that is exactly what we see. This mere mortal priesthood would never atone for sin. But with Christ, there is this aha moment. Well, we realize what is going on. The priesthood now is better. In fact, it is best if we wish to describe it uh, to the best of our ability because He is serving as priest, the one who is perfect, the one who is without spot, without blemish. And not only is He priest, but He is the sacrifice. In one sense, I'm totally... Thankful that I never had to bring a sacrifice because I know my flesh. How hard it would be to bring my best lamb. My best bull. How tough it must have been. What a battle with the flesh. But Christ is doing just that. One sacrifice for all the sins where others were many sacrifices for each sin Continually, repetitively, perpetually, on and on and on. But here we see that His priesthood is in fact superior. It is better because it carries with it the eternal application for all whom He sacrifices for. Think about that. The priesthood of Christ is superior... Because His priesthood carries within it the eternal application for all whom He sacrifices for. The priest before, He would sacrifice for you and that was good up until that point, but it was no good after that. As soon as you walked out the door, as soon as you were gone, as soon as your flesh had opportunity, which it does and which it continues to do, you would sin again and then you would need to go back. You needed another atonement you needed another sacrifice and where Christ is different is that his is applied eternally now it was applied upon the cross it was applied to your account it was even applied before the cross in the case of Abraham we see that righteousness was accredited to him he was sort of saved on the layaway plan if you will his salvation was indeed in Christ as all salvation but its application was from eternity into eternity and that is where it is superior. This is not for just anyone, but like I said earlier, He is our high priest. His sacrifice is for us. It's for the church. It's for the bride. The Lamb of God has forever been applied to your account. Way better than what you would have received before. And with these statements, what we have really is the basis of, for the contrast of the priesthood of Aaron's lineage, and then the priesthood in which Christ is an order of, and that's that of Melchizedek. And so that I don't spoil Chapter Seven, just remember that there's a difference shown here: the the priesthood of Aaron of Aaron and his lineage, and then that of Melchizedek. And we'll study that more in depth, Lord willing, when we, when we get there. But that's really the contrast being drawn. A distinguishment amongst the priesthood of Christ and the merely earthly, mortal priesthood established before that. We saw with verse 2 an appeal to consider Christ in the light of Moses. The Jewish people, as I said, esteemed Him very highly, and yet before them is Jesus. Before these people, as they in one sense may have been idolizing Moses, here is the Christ before them. The Jesus who fulfills all and that just plain does everything better than anyone who has come before Him. And yet the people sometimes miss the gospel, right? That's the purpose of this epistle. To be reminded of the Christ. To be reminded of the salvation that we have in Him. And here is the fact that the gospel message does what it's intended to do. The message of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, it has been revealed to us. It was revealed to the people receiving this letter for they are addressed as such. They are addressed as brethren. We know that they're saved. They have salvation in Christ. But there is this need and the desire for the flesh to appeal to Moses, to appeal to tradition, to appeal to culture. And in that, that is an appeal to self-righteousness. And so what we must know is that Christ is in fact greater than Moses. In one sense, the penman here was begging the question, if Moses deserves so much, so much respect, so much honor, so much glory from you people, if that's what you believe because that's what their actions were telling, if that is in fact the case, what about the greatest? Him being Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Moses was no true, only begotten Son of God. For there cannot be two. Moses was in no way to be compared to Christ. But as John the Baptist would say, he could only point to Christ. There was one coming after that none of us are worthy to loose this sandal. That's the reality. That we can't even touch the feet were so undeserving. After being, of course, reminded not to stray from his saving gospel in chapter two, we see at verse three uh, the scales greatly depicting now the superiority of Christ to that old covenant that they would follow. For he, it says, has been counted worthy. That's not the entire sentence, but I do want to, to stop right there just just to see what this statement is telling us. He has been counted as worthy. The tense here describes a whole life for those who are in Christ. He has been counted. What does the King James say there? He was. It says, this Christ whom we speak of, he has been. He was. And that being the key word. You know, we look to men, mortal men, for advice and wisdom. And we're instructed to do that as the church. As wisdom and this multitude of of counselors. And a lot of times we align ourselves very carelessly with other men for a particular point that they make on an issue. For a particular stance that they take. And it might be okay uh, for us to do that. But then others it's okay for us to, uh, like myself sometimes, be very extra careful in aligning Ourselves with anyone that is still living. Uh, John Cardwell, when he was here, said it many times. He was very careful to endorse any preacher, or any pastor that was still living, for they could yet reject, they could yet pervert the gospel. And yet th- we, we still do this, and sometimes it's subconscious, but we must be careful. It can be dangerous, and even when you are, are very careful, it can still happen that you would put yourself into a particular camp with specific people and later you might regret it because the people change what they believe and they change their, their doctrine. And maybe they just change how they live or they change whatever aspect or area of their life in which uh, we would be ashamed to still be aligned with these people. Many are, are scared to endorse these pastors and preachers and theologians who have yet to die because oftentimes the end will tell us whether or not they finished the race for christ or did they instead renounce christ did they finish unto death for self and in that really finish and begin true destruction of the soul and this is Very true with American Christianity. And I say all this because the tense there is so important. He has been or he was counted worthy. Just in the past year or so, uh, many have come out big names in in churches and Christianity, so to speak. Changing their doctrine or their theology or altogether abandoning biblical Christianity for something else. And of course, some even renounce all trust in Jesus Christ. And this is sad, but it's true. I still think it tells us very much about the passage that we see this morning. The true test of our walk with Christ is shown in time. Time and eternity. These two will tell if we truly belong to Him. If we are sheep of His fold. We are right now and until the death of this physical mortal body, proving the reality of our salvation in Jesus Christ. That's a very serious thing as we consider it. We will practice what we preach or we will not practice what we preach. Our death will prove, in fact, if we truly carried our cross. Death will bear the record. But again, the text says Jesus was counted worthy. Will we be counted worthy? Our trust must be in Him. And we see as it says, Jesus was already counted as more worthy than Moses. Already done, already considered, already found out, already decided. Jesus is more worthy. And He always was more worthy. That's the implication of the text. It was already known. It was already decreed. Even at this time when they were originally receiving this transmission. In one sense because Christ is very God. He cannot cease to live. And He is perfect in all His ways. So death is not necessary to tell if He will live a life pleasing unto the Father. You see how that works out? We don't have to wait until Christ dies to see if He will be pleasing because He will never die because He is perfect. He is God. What He does is good. We don't have to wait in one sense to see if He will prove Himself worthy. More worthy than Moses. But, on the other hand, uh, what well, we consider... What is said in John chapter 10, first of all, verse 30, The Father and I are one. And that is how the statement that I made must be considered as true. But the truth is that in His humanity, in the incarnation, Christ has faced death. Christ has died. And His life there, even up until death, proved what? That He is worthy. So we have a dual witness. We have the model of the Old Testament where we have a witness, and not just one witness, but the first witness is that God being, uh, Christ being God in the flesh, Him being truly deity, there is the witness that He is perfect, that He is faithful, and then we have Christ in the incarnation taking on the body, going to the cross, perfect without blemish, an innocent man, declared by those hung on, on the side, declared by God Himself, innocent, here He is at death, proven, Again, that he is worthy. He's proved his perfection. His deity is revealed. His sacrifice has been accepted. And it's not us, up to us to accept it. Let me say that. That is not what Christianity hinges on. It doesn't matter if you accept, quote unquote, Jesus Christ's sacrifice. Because the sacrifice isn't offered to you, it's offered to God. And so if it is to be a reality, though I understand what people mean when they say that I've accepted Jesus Christ, the truth is that you have not accepted Him. God has accepted Him because God has appointed Him. And because God has accepted this sacrifice, we are submitting to God saying, yes, we know that this is true. It's really not us accepting. It's that God has already accepted in Jesus Christ this propitiation. The voice of heaven has declared this. Just as He Himself in His ministry declared, His sacrifice is sufficient. He is the only way. This is how the text means so much when it says He was faithful. He has been. He was counted as more worthy than Moses. God has declared it. Men have heard it audibly and in the Word, spiritually in their hearts, by visions, dreams, prophets, and then the final prophet in Jesus Christ. As a man, He has done what no other could do. Done what you and I could not and what we would not. Never sinning. Jesus Christ never sinned. That's right, the Bible says that there is no sin in him. Period. I've actually had people who were part of churches, who served in church offices, who would even call themselves preachers to tell me that Jesus, like every other man, sinned. Isn't that ridiculous? One is just down the road. Go to the end of the road. One of the biggest quote-unquote churches in Cowan County. And the pastor's son told me that he thought Jesus used foul language and cursed and sinned like every other man. If you don't think that's a reality in churches in America, you better back up and take a good look. But the Bible said there was no sin in Him. And when the Bible says there's no sin in Him, that is Jesus Christ because He is the living Word. That is Him saying, I have not sinned. And that is God the Father declaring that it is true. He has not sinned. Not a bit. Not a smidgen. Not even a white line. Perfect. Yet the Bible says He was tempted... In every way, as man, still, he is perfect. I want to make sure I use that tense there. Is perfect. Because when we say someone is perfect, that also implies that he has always been perfect and that he was perfect and that he will be perfect into the future. Perfect. And the good news is that death cannot grasp and take hold of a perfect man. It's the reality of sanctification. That's what we believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for. Because death cannot hold on to perfection. We will be made and conformed into His image. And made perfect. Therefore we cannot be held by death. The point that we need to understand. Is that Christ being this perfect man. Going to the cross. Dying. Facing a death as every man will face, he has done something else. He has risen. When I think of that, it seems so simple, and it seems that every, even baby Christians, would declare that Christ is risen. And I think of the words of the wonderful hymn He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. And if you're His, He walks with you and He talks to you. And you better believe if He is not speaking through His Word to you, we need to be bent on our knees begging for the truth of the Gospel to be revealed. The point that we need to understand is that Christ... Because He was already counted as more worthy than Moses. He is no longer on trial. We're not waiting to see if His sacrifice will work. We're not waiting to the end to see if Christ will prove that yes, indeed, He is good enough to die for the sins of mankind. His deity testifies. And into His death on the cross, it testifies. We aren't going at some point to find out if He is Savior. But He already has been named all of these. Savior, Messiah, Christ. The one who is worthy of glory, worthy of honor. And God has said, He is. And He said it long before today. Christ is all of these things. This is my Son. In whom I am well pleased. Man, do you long to hear that? Don't we wish that God could say that about us? But He cannot. He says it about Jesus Christ. The only way to be accepted is to be the bride of the King. We know that Christ is worthy to be praised. And Christ according to the Father is worthy to be exalted, and that is exactly what he has done and what he will continue to do in his church. If Christ is not exalted, it is not a church. If Christ is not exalted in your life, you are not the church. It applies to me. It applies to the elders, to the deacons, to anyone who will stepped foot on this earth. Now you might ask, or maybe not you, but maybe someone you know will come one day asking this question, and I want all of us to be able to answer it. They may say, Mr. Ledbetter or Mr. Taylor, how do we know that Jesus was counted worthy of more glory than Moses? How do we know? I mean, we've heard worse questions, haven't we? I would say, brothers and sisters, you don't need a a dissertation or a college paper to answer this question. Though the opportunity may afford such, and if it does, and they're attentive, I would say, give it all you got. But if you, if you don't have that, if such a day arises, we can simply go to the text of Scripture. Consider Acts chapter two, verse thirty-two. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God and exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. And just so we don't have to go many more pages away to explain how Jesus Christ is more worthy, glory than even Moses. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us through His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. Well, I can tell you this, Moses isn't the heir of all things. How do you know that Christ is worthy of more glory and more honor than anyone because God has appointed him heir of all things. You don't give it to the worst, son. You don't give it to the one who can't handle his business. But God has appointed Christ, heir of all things. And then it says, through whom also he made the world. There's no one better to take care of creation and mankind than the one who has created it himself. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. If this is true, if Christ is the radiance of His glory and the exact imprint or representation of His nature, what makes you think that God would allow men to glorify Moses and esteem Moses as higher? Because He would be putting Moses on a pedestal equal to Himself and that simply will not happen. He abolds all things by the word of His power. And when He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as He inherited a more excellent name than they. No one would have esteemed Moses greater than an angel. Yet... In the flesh, there was this yearning, this desire that was not from heaven to glorify and esteem Moses as one who was higher than Christ. And I will tell you, the people that this was originally transmitted to, that this was originally written to, this epistle, they are no worse off than you and I. We have the same tendencies. So what do we say when people ask this question? Seems sort of trivial and sort of childish because God said so. How do we know that He is worthy, more worthy because God said so? Simple answer. The Bible even says come like a child, right? We'll answer like children. Because God said so. Because the kids love to say, my daddy said so. Our Father who is in heaven has declared this truth. That's explanation enough. We can appeal to no higher. God says that He is more worthy. Over and over again in the Scriptures, you remember Psalm 118, verse 16. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly But to which of the angels did he say any of these things? The answer is none. Did he say these things to Moses? Did he say them to Abraham or Noah or David? Absolutely not. I don't think so. We know that he did. Moses can't compare. And I assure you that if you could ask Moses today, he probably wouldn't want to be compared to Jesus. Because in it would be revealed to everyone the shame and the sinful, depraved state that we all are in. What we are dying in and what we need Christ to deliver us from. And the Gospel does just that. It compares us to Christ. And the bittersweet reality is that as we somehow see us coming, see our lives coming to an end, and we see uh, death approaching, and we see condemnation getting ever close, we are seeing the reality of sin. And we see that our sins are waxing great, and they're, they're numerous, and they're more than we can conquer in the flesh. And then we can in turn say, Oh, the Savior Jesus Christ. The one who is righteous, he waxes greater. The verse ends with a relevant point on which the Hebrews are to think on. On which the church, even this morning, is to ponder. It says, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. He's making a show of what he's saying. He's depicting for us in common language how we must consider an analogy, if you will. The house is great, but the builder is greater. The creation seems wonderful, but to accredit it as more awesome or more wonderful than its creator, that would be a travesty. Can I just say something here to speak on, on, on what the horn is showing us in the text? I want some liberty to describe to you the spiritual reality of the house that may seem hidden in the verse. We are thinking of earthly houses, and that's exactly how it's depicted. Shouldn't the builder of the house get more respect and more honor than the building? But what about the house of the Lord? What is the spiritual implication if these houses are not merely stone or brick and mortar or clay? What if this is speaking about the church? This is the place where Jesus is housed in spirit. Right? The church. These mortal bodies. The comforter. The one who he, He has promised. We're talking about a a wall of building any longer, this type of house. But we're talking about the dwelling place of God and his Holy Spirit. We're talking about many members, one body, the church of Jesus Christ, the house, the temple. And we must ask this question: who built it? Who is currently and continually building his house? The Bible said is This house is not built with mere human hands. And that's a reality that the church needs to be reminded of. Who is building this house? Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I will build my church. I will build this house. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And what must you do? You must not glorify the house that He has given you, but you must glorify and profess and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the builder of the house. That's what the text says. Jesus. He is the builder. He is the chief cornerstone. That's what's so great we see in in Christ's priesthood. He is the priest. He is the sacrifice. And now what do we see? Jesus is the builder and He is the cornerstone. He is the supply. He is the provision by which it will be built. He is the part, the sum, the whole. Of whatever will be built. Can't be built any other way. It will not stand. Christ is the builder of the church. Because he is the creator of its people. He also created. Not just us. But all of creation. That includes all of mankind. Even those who are unregenerate. So of course. It goes really without saying. That he deserves more honor than Moses. Or. Or. More than any other man. He created man. In Him is the provision for salvation. He saves and only He saves. And then as He is saving, He is transforming and He is conforming. And He's not making you look like every other house in the neighborhood. That's the reality of this house builder. He is making you look like Himself. God through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word, is making us look like Jesus Christ. The only house that cannot be torn down. It's what He's doing. It's what the church is. It's who you and I are in Jesus Christ. And this is the greatest revelation. We have Jesus described not just as the builder, But the architect, and this architect doesn't just order his material elsewhere, but he creates it. The sand that makes the mortar, the clay that makes the brick, the tools that work them together, and the knowledge to use them for good, those only come from Christ. Christ is every component of the church. And if there is anything in it not good, it is not of Christ. This is sin. This is why we read... The sum and the substance of every house here today, church, is Jesus Christ. Like you and I, the Hebrew people, needed to know this. And that is the point of the verse in this epistle. Moses was at best a servant. And you and I simply are servants unto one who is greater. But the most wonderful point after understanding all of this is that we aren't just any servants, but we are servants of the Most High God because Jesus Christ is God. God and man. Who made salvation not just a possibility, but He made salvation a reality. Now we have to look at the entire context of those three verses. What is being done here? The Hebrew people who once followed after tradition, who looked to the law for salvation and for righteousness and found none, heard a message of Jesus Christ. And they were saved by it. By which uh, the, the penmen of the Hebrews even calls them brethren. Holy brethren. Those who are made holy by Jesus Christ because they heard the message that was different from what they had been following all their lives. But what do we see in chapter 2? A warning to heed the message. To heed the one who is described in the message. To heed this Jesus Christ who is being described. And what we have here is an appeal saying, look, listen... You have been saved by the message of Jesus Christ. Remember, please, that He is more faithful and He is more worthy than Moses and He is a high priest. Remember that. He's not telling unregenerate people this. He's telling people who have already received Jesus Christ. Do you know why? Because the church is just like the Hebrew people. You ever had someone teach you something, a better way to do something? And you might do it for a while. And then you just go back to the old way because that's the way you like to do it. And Even though it probably doesn't make much sense, it's just easier for you. It may take longer. It may be a little harder. But that's just the way you like to do it. I think about you know, people that learn to type. I went to school with a lot of people. They'd learn how to type. Take a class all year long. They'd learn how to type. And they did good on their tests and everything. And then you see them later and they're writing a paper and they're doing this. One key at a time. Same thing with cell phones. I think the best example in the church is probably James. He he doesn't have a cell phone. He's got a number in his car. You can call him on it and it might be easier than going all the way home and using the phone, but guess what? He just doesn't do it, right? We all have something where we we do that. And this is what's happening in this particular portion of Scripture. They had this old way of doing things and it wasn't very good, but they were just comfortable doing it. We're just... Try to live by this law. No man ever justified by it. No man ever saved by it. And then they hear the message of Jesus Christ. Saying, hey, you know this law that we're trying to keep, we can't keep it. And we're not being saved by it. Here is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He's come and taken upon Himself the sin of mankind. Him being perfect and imputed His righteousness to them. He's died on the cross. He's died so that you don't have to keep doing that law. And what do they do? They must have went back to the old way. They must have went back to following this Moses, even though they had heard about this Jesus. This is the church. This is the reality that we're facing from now until the time when Christ meets us, the time in which we reach perfection, the time in which we enter the kingdom of heaven, This is what is going on. We need to be reminded. Not to follow a Moses or a Moses of our own making. Any other idol. How do we do it? Consider Jesus. That's what the text says. The apostle and high priest of our confession. It's quite simple. The ways of the world lead unto death. Jesus Christ leads unto life. You've been saved. The majority that are here. You've been pardoned. You've been made holy. And you're being sanctified. But you must be reminded. How do we do it? The Word of God. The text that we read this morning. To be reminded in every season that we preach only one message, Jesus Christ crucified for the remission of sins. So the call today is the same as it is every day. To every person, Christian, believer or unbeliever, submit unto to the Lord Jesus Christ. Admit that we are sinners. Trust in Him for salvation. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Let's go to the Lord, Father. As we consider your text this morning, Lord, we're thankful that you would write it, Lord, that you would allow men to record it, or that you would preserve it just for times such as these, Lord, that we could meet together and worship. Lord, bring our sins before You and know that they are forgiven in Jesus Christ. Lord, some, even now, may let these words pass by. Lord, I pray that You would cause them to be stuck to our hearts and stuck in our minds, Lord, insomuch that we would constantly be bringing our sin before You and trusting in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that that Jesus would save someone here today, that they would no longer be disgusted and put off by church, that they would be put off by worship services, but they would find joy in hearing about the Savior who is a real man and who has really died upon a cross, who has suffered the most agonizing death so that we shall not so that we can be saved. Lord we thank you for this day. Lord we thank you for the, the food that you have uh, provided for us for the lunch. Lord we ask that you would bless it. That you would bless uh, the reading of your word today. Lord to increase our joy and our love for Christ. And Lord we just ask that uh, as we go forward to partake of the meal that we do so worthily. Lord, in reverence to what you've provided for us and what you've given as a means of provision unto your people. Lord, we ask that you would bless those that prepared it and that you would be glorified and exalted this day and that Christ would reign supreme in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.